Thank you. You may be seated. So for those of you who uh, don't know me, I'm Johnny, um, and I am not one of the elders, but I am here to share uh, God's Word with you this morning. Um, so this morning we're picking up in the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, and here we find Nehemiah now in Jerusalem, um, having left his position in the king's palace at Susa. So over the past uh, three weeks or so, we've been in Nehemiah. Pastor Rod began with an introduction, um, a flyover through the book. We've ad- identified some of the book's major themes and the melodic line. And remember, the melodic line is the main idea that unifies all the pieces of the book. So I'll repeat it uh, here for our benefit. It's the faithfulness of Israel's covenant God who remembers his people by restoring them to himself through the leadership of his chosen vessel, Nehemiah. And I'll repeat that again because it's long. The faithfulness of Israel's covenant God who remembers his people by restoring them to himself through the leadership of his chosen vessel, Nehemiah. And there are several elements in that melodic line uh, that surface in the passage before us today. God's faithfulness, God's remembrance, restoration of his people, Nehemiah's leadership. And so those are all themes that I hope to draw out uh, for us to see today. Um, But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would use me now as a messenger of your word. Uh, As we dig into your work, as we dig into the work that you accomplished uh, in and through Nehemiah, your servant, Give us all ears to hear and hearts to respond to the truths that you bring us, that you bring to bear. We pray that this time of study would be a time of worship where we see you and remember the reasons for which we give you praise and thanksgiving. Let your word reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm not a big TV person. I, I don't own a TV, but when I did own one of those old tube TVs, um, I used to be really into this uh, reality competition show. Um, it's, it's a new type of, or it's a type of show that was, didn't really exist um, too long, that long ago. Um, I think Survivor was probably one of the first that came out and, you know, really got a lot of popularity. But the one show that, I, that aired on CBS and I followed was called The Amazing Race, And some of you may have heard of it or even followed it yourselves. So episode one of each season starts out with 11 teams of two who start a race around the world um, in sort of a sophisticated scavenger hunt. So they're looking for clues. They're interacting with locals and completing mental and physical challenges uh, and trying to do all of this faster than all the other teams so that they can cross the finish line at the end of the episode to avoid elimination. So one example is in, in one of the seasons that I followed, there was an episode where the teams had to take a leg of the Trans-Siberian ra- Railroad from one part of Siberia to another. Um, and then they got into snow plows and did a, a race around the stadium. And then they ran to the city's library and did a foot race to the city's opera. Um, and so that's the kind of show it is. It's, it's just kind of crazy. Um, but with each episode, one team is eliminated And at the very end of the season, there's two teams left. And it's the first team to cross the finish line in that final episode that wins the grand prize. You know, to me, I think the appeal of a show like this is that I really get behind my favorite team. And I really like to see how they face up to each progressive challenge that they face and how they use strategy to sort of beat out the other teams, other than the fact that I, I love to travel vicariously through um, these, these places that they visit. So I ask myself, you know, will the team take the right steps in this episode? Will they make the right moves to beat out the other teams? And at the end of each season, or near the end of each season, if the, the team that I'm rooting for is eliminated, I always, I always face a little bit of disappointment or devastation 
uh, because they made just one small mistake or they made one bad decision, and all the work that they had done to that point is, is sort of lost. Um, but that's, that's the kind of show it is. Now, when I read the first couple chapters of Nehemiah, I'm s somehow reminded of that show, The Amazing Race, and also of God's amazing grace. Because in this episode-by-episode episode progress, where at each stage there's a new challenge and an opportunity to succeed or fail, we see how Nehemiah responds. But the difference is that for Nehemiah, there's a lot more at stake than a cash prize. He's in it for the restoration of his people, securing the blessings of their covenant God. This is no game show for him. And the seriousness that he brings to the task is evident in chapter 1, which we saw in the past two weeks, where he receives the news from Jerusalem. He spends days mourning and weeping. And then he gets immediately to work with four months in prayer. So what's that all about? You know, you hear this bad news and you, you spend four months in prayer. Well, I think the, the leading lines of the well-known hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, uh, describe Nehemiah's posture appropriately. And you all know the words. It says, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. So what Nehemiah is doing in these four months of prayer is that he's tuning his heart for this huge task before him. And oh, does he know the challenges that he's facing. Some might think that he can't afford to waste this time or sit around doing nothing and just praying. But he knows that he can't afford to charge ahead without his, first, without his heart first attuned to the assurance of God's promises. So Nehemiah resolved to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, conducts a careful inspection, and rallies the people to initiate the work with the assurance that God will prosper them. And that really sums up the main idea of the passage this morning, so I'll repeat it, and I think it's also printed in your bulletins for you to, to fill in the, the blanks. Again, resolved to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls, Nehemiah conducts a careful inspection and rallies the people to initiate the work with the assurance that God will prosper them. In the passage today, we're challenged to see how God used a faithful leader to rally his people into action for his work and ultimately to succeed in rebuilding a broken down city. The passage naturally breaks up into three scenes, and so it was easy for me to sort of break up this message into three parts. Um, so first is his arrival in Jerusalem, second is Nehemiah before his people, and third is Nehemiah before his opponents. And I have clever titles for all those, so don't try to fill in the blanks right now. Um, and through each of these scenes, there's a progression that happens. The mission becomes more and more certain, more public. The stakes get higher and higher each time. And at each stage, it's almost as if Nehemiah is challenged to ask himself, so what does God promise me again? Do I really believe in his promises? And do I believe that he'll do what he said that he would do? Nehemiah is God's chosen vessel in this account. And yes, he's the central figure of this historical narrative, but only insofar as he reveals God's work in him through his decisions, his speech, and his actions. So let's get into the beginning of this passage, beginning in verse 11 through 16. We have scene one, surveying the walls in secret. Surveying the walls in secret. So verses 11 through 12a deal with Nehemiah's mission. So mission is sort of that first observation under this section. So Nehemiah is in Jerusalem, and after months of praying and planning, this is not any small development in the story unfolding. And it's the occasion for also the title of my message. I'm calling it Feet on the Ground. So there's no elaboration that's given in verse 11 
on the journey of 800 plus miles that would have taken Nehemiah and his contingent several months to complete, except for the fact that the king did allow Nehemiah to travel with um, you know, a group of a group of army men and, and soldiers to, to protect him. But the absence of detail on this 800-mile journey you know, might just be the point that we need to see. God was working behind the scenes to arrange all the details of this journey, and that's really what's important. Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, it just didn't just happen overnight. There were a number of enabling events that had to happen prior to this event. And so what are those events that led to Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem? Over 800 miles from where he started, where he held a respectable position as an official in the king's court. Let's go back and recount some of these events that take place in Nehemiah chapter 1 and even before that. So I'm going to kind of go tracing backwards. In Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8, this was last week, the king grants Nehemiah's request to be given letters so that he can make the journey to Judah in safety. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says that the king granted Nehemiah's request to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And God was certainly at work in the heart of the king for this to have happened. And I'll elaborate on that in a, later in the sermon. In chapter 1, verse 2, Hanani, remember, uh, he's the, the messenger that comes from Jerusalem, bringing the devastating news of what condition the city of God is in. And it's, it's at that moment that Nehemiah is so stricken by the condition of his people, of, his, of the city, and determines in his heart that he needs to do something. And even before the book of Nehemiah, there's a really important event that um, Pastor Rod did point out, but this comes back all the way to the end of Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 23, the very last verse of the Chronicles. And this is more than a hundred years earlier than when Nehemiah comes on the scene in Jerusalem. It's King Cyrus's decree that all the Judeans are allowed to return to their home to begin the work of restoration. Okay, so that really sets the stage for, for the story. Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you ask yourself, now how did I get here? And then you begin to think back at one decision or one circumstance, and maybe you even thought it was a, co a coincidence at that point, but it was really God working behind the scenes to get you to the very place that you find yourself. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if during this 800-mile journey that Nehemiah was you know, traveling day by day, that he was sort of recounting these events in his head. And you'll notice also that once he arrives in Jerusalem, he doesn't just start work right away. He rests for three days. He's allowing these things to sink in for him to really understand what is God doing? What, he, what has he done before he really gets to the practical work? And so through all these events, we see that Nehemiah's mission was really enabled and orchestrated by God himself. All of this culminates in a conviction which Nehemiah, on which Nehemiah takes immediate action. So verse 12b, the second part of verse 12, says that God put something in Nehemiah's heart. And you might ask yourself, what is that? What does that mean? But examining the events that lead up to this point, this isn't just some hunch or an arbitrary desire that he manufactures within his own heart. If we look back at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we see that his desire grew out of first hearing about the condition of his people and then remembering God's covenant to his people. And this is what it says in, in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. And this is what he prays. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there 
I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That's the promise that Nehemiah is recalling to memory and that drives him to action. His, his, the burden of his heart is just that. It's to lead his people back to God, to keep his commandments so that his people could be gathered back together to the place, to the city that God had set aside for them. Now the next point we want to see here uh, is Nehemiah's method. Nehemiah's method in verses 12b to 15. And this is where really the practical feet on the ground work begins. So up to this point, everything that Nehemiah was reacting to was based on the testimony of Hanani, that person that we see in the beginning of chapter 1. But now we have something different. Nehemiah is getting ready to witness the state of the city and the walls with his own eyes to verify the report that he'd heard. Verse 12 says that he gathers a small party together and, he, and they went out under the cover of night. So there are a few places in this book where the book, where, where the book mentions the walls and the gates as being the two main you know, elements or the pieces of the wall. And it always says the walls were broken down and the gates were destroyed by fire. And one additional detail that we have about the condition of the walls in this text is that Nehemiah was riding on, a, on an animal and there was no room for his animal to pass. The city was probably surrounded by rubble and ashes, meaning it was completely unprotected from outside invaders. If you're trying to protect the city, the first, really the first thing you need to do is secure the perimeter. And so the fact that the wall had been broken down put the city in a very vulnerable position. And the wall was also necessary for God's people to be holy, to be set apart, and to be the people that God had really chosen them to be. So in this passage, Nehemiah makes his rounds to a few of the city gates. And, and by the way, if you're wondering what is meant by the names of these different gates, uh, just think of them as unique ways to identify different entrances and exits to the city. So the, so the dung gate would have probably been used to, you know, take the refuse of the city out to the city's dump. And so and according to the historian's concept of how the city was laid out, uh, Nehemiah probably just made a partial circuit around the city. He didn't do a whole, you know, circumnavigation of the entire city walls. You know, he probably went out, he saw the destruction, and it was just the same thing all the way around. Um, but by this survey that he conducted, he validates the work to be done. And it was likely that during the survey, he also started to think about a work plan for, okay, how are we going to reconstruct this wall? You know, putting on his engineering hat. Um, and then you'll see that in the next chapter in, uh, of how they really go about this work. So from a procedural standpoint, this is not too different for you engineers out there, what, what we'd call uh, an existing conditions study. So before embarking on a major engineering project like a highway reconstruction or a building retrofit project, you know, it's really important to understand what the existing conditions of the site are. Are there any, is there any undocumented damage to the facility? Is there a major site constraint that would affect the way that we designed the project? These are all important factors to consider early on in a study because if you proceed without knowing these unknowns, they can become very costly changes down the road. So once you understand the issues you're up against, you're in a much better position to then scope a project and then define a schedule and a budget to complete it. The difference is that for Nehemiah, he wasn't simply looking at this through the eyes of an engineer, but he was returning home. He was feeling the disgrace of his people and what the damage and the wreckage of the walls meant to him. I heard a story on the radio several weeks ago about a photojournalist who recently died after a really accomplished career. And he covered lots of stories that made world headlines in the past decade or so, like the Iraq War, 
the Haiti earthquake, famine and, and conflict in Somalia and Rwanda, the Ebola outbreak in Liberia, and the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. And so just imagine, with that list I just rattled off, imagine the brokenness and the horrors that he saw during his career. In 2011, he photographed a Japanese man who he met on his return back to his mother's home in northeastern Japan. And if you don't recall, there was a 9.0 earthquake and tsunami that hit that region of the country back in 2011. The disaster had completely leveled an entire town, including his mother's house. And as this man, he sifted through the remains of the home. All he could recover of his mother was one of her old tennis shoes. He didn't even have a photo or any sort of keepsake to remember her by. And so as I was listening to the story, I was just so heartbroken. And later seeing this image that, you know, this photojournalist captured of this man holding a tennis shoe in one hand and a brick in another, his face just seemed to say, I've lost everything. Imagine returning to your own home after a major hurricane or a flood or a fire or more realistically an earthquake, since we're in California. You know, once the physical damage is done, the emotional wreckage settles in, but then at some point you have to start making plans and taking measured steps for what to do next. When you look out across a bleak landscape, what do you see? Is all you can see the apparent destruction of everything that used to be or all that's been lost? After the grieving has passed, do you choose to remain in that state of despair? Or can you see a starting point from which God will begin to rebuild? The faint-hearted will look at a task that's too big for them to handle, and then they'll look at themselves, forgetting God and his promises. But the faithful will look at the same task and then look to God and remember the assurance of his promises. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So Nehemiah, you know, after having tuned his heart to God's promises, was able to see beyond just the rubble and the wreckage. And he was able to see the restoration of the city and his people. So a third observation in this section is Nehemiah's manner, his manner. This is the way that he carries out his mission to survey and ultimately to rebuild the walls. He arose in the night with only a few other men, and he told no one about his work. And in verse 16, it says, the officials, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and even his own people, you know, they didn't know what he was up to or what he was doing. He was on really a, a secret mission. So to explain this and the reasoning behind why Nehemiah would go about this survey in the way that he did, let's remember how Nehemiah reacted to the news that came from Jerusalem in chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 4, it says that Nehemiah wept and mourned for days when he received that news. He was utterly devastated, and that fueled his calling out in prayer to God, which then led him to take action in courage and in faith, approaching the king which God then, through which God then granted permission for him to embark on this mission back to Jerusalem. And he carries the same seriousness and gravity with him as he now begins the work on the ground. It also points to the reality that opposition was brewing in the background. We get a, a preview of this in verse 10, just, a few, just one verse before our passage. So verse 10 introduces these opponents, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, who had been displeased to hear about Nehemiah's return. 
So Nehemiah was not ready to go public with his mission just yet. Because he knew that the enemy would try to thwart what he was doing. But despite his attempts to keep things sort of undercover, these opponents had somehow you know, heard through, through the grapevine that something was happening. You know, there's this faithful man who's coming back to Jerusalem to begin this work of restoration. But it's not just his opponents that he's hiding his plans from. His own people, they're not keyed in to what he's doing at this point. And that, that's apparent in verse 16. It's not until he's finished a first-hand survey of the state of affairs that he begins to share his message to a broader audience. So in relation to his opponents, he obviously didn't want to share inside information because, you know, that would give them an upper hand in, in stemming it before it even started. But in relation to his people, he was preparing to commission a tremendous task. And this was born out of his conviction. He was armed now with first-hand experience, and he no longer relied on second-hand information. So knowing the, the magnitude of what he was about to do, he wanted to be careful about how he then started involving his people in the work of rebuilding. So Nehemiah's circumspection was an exercise of his wisdom. So his, his circumspection was certainly an, an exercise of wisdom. And this is his character on display. It, it really takes patience to tackle a huge task one step at a time, not being too hasty to begin until the time is right. And it's wise to measure up a task before mobilizing the resources for the work to be done. Think about it. How effective is it to commit resources to a task when you don't, you don't, you don't even know how big the problem is? What will happen is you'll either end up overcommitting resources, or even worse, you'll find yourself without the means to complete what you've started. So we'll often hear things like plan before you act or think before you speak. And, and these are words of common wisdom, but it's also the manner of a man who wisely works out the conviction that burns in his heart. There's a seriousness about approaching the work of restoration. The passage, this passage is a historical account about rebuilding city walls, but ultimately it's about rebuilding a people. And we might find ourselves at times looking out on our own lives and seeing the destruction caused by our own sin. And you know, it's okay and it's right in those times to grieve and to mourn over the ugliness of sin. And I think Paul's principle that he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 applies here. And this is what Paul says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief. Nehemiah grieved upon learning of his people's brokenness, of his city's brokenness, which was a product of their sin. And then he repented for himself and for his people, and he called upon God to remember his promise. So let's move on to the next section, verse 17. And so, so here we have scene two. I'm calling it commissioning the work with conviction. Commissioning the work with conviction. And here, Nehemiah addresses his people with his assessment of the situation and what must be done. There's a call and response dialogue between Nehemiah and the people in these two verses. So we'll take a look at that. So first, the report that Nehemiah brings in verse 17. He says, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So one thing that strikes me here is, didn't the people already know that the walls had been broken down and the gates were burned? I mean, why did Nehemiah have to tell them that? It's not that he's sharing anything new. I mean, this was their home. This is where they lived. And then if that's, if that's the case, then 
why weren't they doing anything about it? Well, I think we can assume that they did know what the condition of their city was, but it's the sad fact that they had accepted the broken down state that they were in. And this is telling of the troubled condition of this people. And it also points to a connection between the brokenness of a city and the brokenness of a people. And it's at this point that God brings an appointed man into the picture, Nehemiah, to say, hey, take a, take a hard look around you. But that's not all. Let's look at the rally, the rally in verse 17b. And so Nehemiah continues, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. So he tells his people, now is the time to rebuild. Enough with the complacency of inaction, enough with the dishonor we've brought to God, enough with the shame and the ridicule that's been cast upon Jerusalem. You know, Nehemiah is very concerned about the shame and, the, and on the other side, the honor of his people because it reflects on the honor or the dishonor of their God. God's covenant people can't persist in the state that it's in. And there's a connection here between restored city walls and honor and not suffering derision, which was Nehemiah's call to action. So after months and months of praying, followed by months and months of travel, this is the long-awaited public address. This is where Nehemiah kind of unravels his desire, his plans. And what this reminds me of is Peter and John in the book of Acts. In Acts 4, these two apostles are released from prison. And they're warned by the Jewish authorities not to speak of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, this is how they respond. They say, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, they had witnessed firsthand the miraculous resurrection of their Lord. And they couldn't just, they couldn't keep their mouths shut. They needed to do something. And in a similar manner here, Nehemiah is acting on a burning conviction that's born out of God's covenant. And he can't just sit around waiting for someone else to get the work of restoration started. So if you, in case you aren't aware, we're in a, pres we're in a presidential election year. And with primary season just behind us, you know, November is quickly approaching. And I think, you know, we've, every time you hear, turn on the radio, turn on the TV, you know, we're sort of bombarded with these sound bites from political rallies. You know, and whether it comes from the Republicans or the Democrats, the aim of all these rallies is the same. It's to rack up support behind these political ideologies for the end of winning votes. And while political rallies are geared towards riling crowds around social issues and ideologies, here we have one man who rallies the people, not out of self-interest, but around the indisputable fact that a city is broken and it needs to be fixed. Why? It's because the blessing from God through the covenant that he made with Moses is at stake here. Verse 18. Verse 18 points to the resources that Nehemiah brings to the task. So this is what it says. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the works that the king had spoken to me. So beyond the manpower and the tools and the building materials that'll be necessary to rebuild the walls in sections, you know, we have God's hand upon Nehemiah for good. God is at work behind the scenes. And it's the same phrase that we saw last week in verse 8, when the king granted him not only permission to return to the city, 
but also gave him letters for safe passage through all these provinces that he would be passing through, and also permission to use timber from the king's forest in order to, to construct the walls. So again, I ask you, when you look out on a scene that's covered in rubble and destruction, what do you focus on? Do you focus on the amount of work that's to be done? Or do you see the resources you have to get the work done? When you have the very hand of God upon you, there really is no task that can exhaust your resources. And that's what Nehemiah is trying to communicate to his people. There's an apparent challenge of grasping that reality in the face of evidence that points otherwise. Next is the people's response in the second part of verse 18. They simply say, let us rise up and build. You know, it really doesn't get much straight to the point than that. So in essence, they're agreeing. They agree that the city is in trouble, that they've had enough of this shame and dishonor that they have wallowed in, and they accept Nehemiah as God's chosen man to lead this effort, and they're now ready to roll up their sleeves, pick up their tools, and get to work. And they see. They see beyond the rubble. They see beyond the dust. And they're beginning to see the divine resources that are undergirding them. This is not a man's task. And this is, this is God's work through his people. And it says, so they strengthen their hands for the good work. They realize that this is not simply a construction project, but it's a work of divine restoration. Now, what's remarkable here is that there had already been a failed attempt to rebuild since the return of the first exiles to Jerusalem. So if we recall Zerubbabel, he led the first return of exiles back to Jerusalem. They began the work of restoring the walls decades earlier but at that time, his opponents had convinced the king of Persia that the people were rebelling. And so, convinced of that fact, the king issued a decree and said, okay, you opponents of, Jeru of Jerusalem, go ahead and force them to stop building. And by the way, this is the same king who later granted Nehemiah's request to return and start building so it's even more remarkable that God used Nehemiah to undo a previous decree that came from the same king. So let's take, let's take a look at Ezra chapter 4. Let's turn to Ezra chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. In verse 21, it says, Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me, and take care not to be slack in this manner. In this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that, that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So that's, that was the last attempt to rebuild the city's walls. Now, the temple was eventually finished. It was dedicated under Zerubbabel's watch, but the wall itself remained unfinished. So, when Nehemiah is commissioning the people and getting them to now join in this effort to rebuild, the people are likely thinking about this previous threat. They're thinking back on this discouragement when Nehemiah is now coming before them. So as a leader, you know, you probably couldn't hope for a more positive, hopeful response from the people who had been troubled and ashamed. You know, but such an outcome doesn't just happen. Remember Nehemiah's conviction 
that drove his mission, his method, his manner in being careful, in being circumspect, to then commission the people at the right time and with the right information. And while this is a testament, while this is a testament to Nehemiah's great leadership skill, remember also the sovereign God who brought this man on the scene in the first place to start mobilizing the people against countless odds. So now verses 19 and 20, we have our third scene. And I'm calling this resisting opposition with resolve. Resisting opposition with resolve. So two men re-enter the picture in, in, verse, in verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. And they appeared in a previous passage. And now we have a third who has kind of joined team opposition. That's Geshem the Arab. And they'll come up a number of times in this book. And, you know, these are political leaders from surrounding regions around Jerusalem. And they're apparently the voice of opposition to the good work that Nehemiah had just commissioned. So first consider the ridicule, the ridicule that these opponents bring. Let's see in verse 19. It says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant the Ammonite servant, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So ridicule and, and shame, you know, these are themes that run throughout the book of Nehemiah. The broken down state of the walls had cast a shadow of shame upon the city. So Nehemiah's opponents launched their first attack on the rebuilding effort using ridicule, and false accusation. And now adding to their displeasure upon hearing that Nehemiah had returned to rally up the people, now they had apparently heard that the Jews had committed their hands to the rebuilding effort. So verse 19 says that they jeered. Think of jeering as a form of, of ridicule in the form of rude and mocking remarks you know, directed at the Jews and the rebuilding effort. It's not too different, if you recall, you know, just kind of like a short story in the book of 2 Kings, where Elisha the prophet encounters a mob of boys. And it's, I don't want to call it a comical story, but it is kind of, because that's the only reason I remember it. But they, they called him a bald head. And, you know, they, they're, they're just hurling these hateful, childish, you know, offensive remarks at God's prophet. Um, you know, God ultimately takes care of that. But here we have Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who took hold of a reason to despise the people of God, and they started launching these offensives. The accusation that the Jews were rebelling against the king, you know, that's completely unfounded. And in fact, you know, we just read that Nehemiah had been given express permission from King Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem. And that itself was based on that 100-plus-year-old decree by King Cyrus to allow the, 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 the Judeans to return and rebuild Jerusalem. So this is the first of many attacks that we'll see just being amplified um, in, in later episodes this narrative. Let's look at Nehemiah's reply, reply in verse 20. It says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he doesn't even bother answering to the ridiculous threats of his opponents, but he does state what his conviction has been all along that God himself will prosper their rebuilding effort and eventually restore the people. His confidence is not in his leadership ability, the number of people, or even the king's backing, which he does have, but it's in the God of heaven. So in an encounter where he can appeal to his high-ranking position as cupbearer to the king of Persia, he chooses rather to identify as God's servant. 
That's amazing. It's the same language that he uses in his prayer in chapter 1, where he calls himself and his people servants of God. So this relationship to him, his, servant, his servanthood to God, is the relationship that grants him far greater assurance that he and his people will succeed and overcome the offensives of his opponents. In contrast, Sanballat and his, and his friends have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem, meaning that they're outside of God's covenant promise that, he's, that God has made exclusively with his people. So their opposition to the work, it's expected, and it's simply the outworking of who they are. Now, con- contained in this reply from Nehemiah in verse 20 is his resolve. So his resolve to proceed with the work is planned. Verse 20 says, And we, his servants, will arise and rebuild. And he is not swayed by his enemy's threats. So when confronted directly by opposition, you know, many of us would stop and, and think, wait, why am I doing this again? To what end? And as Ed made the point last week, Opposition and trial will test and and reveal the true convictions of our heart. Given the type of character that Nehemiah is, he's processing this offensive from his opponents. And he might have started by thinking, will they really persist in blocking the work and even take this accusation to the authorities and pull off what they did, you know, those many years ago when the king actually changed his mind? You know, but then he quickly remembers that he doesn't serve an earthly king, in the ultimate sense at least. He serves a heavenly king. And he says the work will continue. You know, Sambalat and his friends could have threatened to kill him. And eventually they will intensify their tactics. But the answer would have still been the same. The work will continue. And by extension, you know, there's no threat There's no terror so great that God's purposes will be thwarted. If the end is to honor God, then there's no second guessing. There's no regrets. This is what the Apostle Peter wrote to the persecuted church in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. This is in relation to suffering for the gospel of Jesus. He says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, the persecutors, nor be troubled. That's his encouragement to an early church that was being discouraged by external persecution. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is a, is a familiar passage that describes the, the noteworthy faith of so many who anticipated but didn't live to see the fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus Christ. Abraham was one such man, and he's described as one who was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13, says of Abraham and those who had this forward-looking, anticipating faith. Verse 13, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, if they had been thinking of, the land, of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the heavenly Jerusalem described in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. A city whose walls 
would be impenetrable and gates fireproof. Nehemiah's earthly Jerusalem, with its patched up walls and salvaged gates, was an anticipation of this heavenly city. And though Nehemiah is not specifically mentioned in the so-called Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, he certainly did exhibit a faith that caused him to make decisions and act in a way that could only be possible through sole dependence on a God who is capable of much greater things than he. So finally, remember. Remember. So that was a word that was introduced in Pastor Rod's uh, introductory overview of the book of Nehemiah. And I want to return to it here to drive home an application from today's passage. So Nehemiah is often calling to God in this book to remember his promises, to remember his promises. And God doesn't forget. God, you know, God is faithful. He will remember. It's us. You know, we're the forgetful ones. So we too are called to remember, especially in the face of opposition and trial. Some of you might know about my mom. Um, my mom has early onset Alzheimer's. And it's just in the past six years that she's pretty rapidly declined through the progressive stages. Um, you know, it's, it's happened very quickly. Alzheimer's is a disease that damages a person's memory, particularly their short-term memory, and it progressively affects their behavior, communication, their personality. Long-standing relationships will wither away during what is commonly called the long goodbye. And at first, you know, her changing behavior, it seemed to be a function of her aging. And really, Alzheimer's wasn't even a concept, um, not in her late 50s. But as the patterns became more and more apparent and doctors' opinions confirmed my family's fears, you know, I began to feel the devastation and the hopelessness of the fact that my mother was, you know, she was slipping away before my eyes. And there was really nothing that I could do to restore her previous health. And that is what Dr. Benjamin Mast calls, quote, the second forgetting, unquote, of family and caretakers of loved ones affected by Alzheimer's. So he wrote a book called The Second Forgetting, and this is what he says. Um, I'm just going to read a passage from that book. He says, quote, We are all imperfect and broken. We forget the Lord, even in the best of health. This is what I call the second forgetting. The first forgetting is experienced by the person with Alzheimer's, but the second forgetting reflects a spiritual forgetting experienced not only by the person with Alzheimer's, but more broadly by their family, friends, and even the church who seeks to care for them, unquote. As humans, we're prone to forget, especially in the face of trial. In a crisis moment, it can, see that all, it can seem that all we can see is the problem itself and that God's, path, God's past faithfulness and future promises are overshadowed. But really, in forgetting God's promises, we forfeit the only thing that's worth remembering. Nehemiah could not have succeeded in commissioning the rebuilding of the wall had he focused on the threat that was right before his face, the threat of his enemies or the impossible odds that he was up against. But by focusing on the promise, he remembered the mighty God who was enabling him and was assuring him victory. So chapter 2 of Nehemiah concludes with a continuing display of God's faithfulness. The burden that God had put into Nehemiah's heart is now fleshed out in a concrete, feet-on-the-ground action plan. So I'd like to conclude now with uh, three thoughts. And these are observations of Nehemiah's actions through each of the three scenes that we stepped through. And what is the truth that they communicate about God? And so hopefully, that, hopefully these will help cast light on the implications of our own actions and our decisions. So first, 
is a plan before action. God is revered. Nehemiah took his time to react, to pray, to strategize, to study, and to make a plan before making a public statement and then mobilizing his people to action. So God placed this burden on Nehemiah's heart. And he didn't take it lightly, but he approached it with all diligence and wisdom. And through that, Nehemiah was able to ascertain a more accurate picture of the task ahead of him through careful and measured steps. How do you respond when you face a seemingly impossible task? When you know that it's the right thing to do? When we treat God's burdens with sober minds and with care, God is revered. Again, when we treat God's burdens with sober minds and care, God is revered. Second is a call born of conviction. God is worthy. So once the planning is done, in scene two, Nehemiah involved his countrymen in a public setting because he had a conviction that he could no longer contain within himself. And by calling, calling them to rebuild the wall, he was sharing that burden in his heart, which God himself had placed there. Now, what drives you to do the things that you do, especially when the costs are high? When we, when we publicly act out our conviction, we communicate that God is worthy. Again, when we publicly act out our conviction, we communicate that God is worthy. And third, we see a, a remembrance despite threat. God is foundational. So in the third scene, Nehemiah faces immediate and growing opposition to the work of rebuilding the wall. And instead of backing down or watering down his message, you know, his message and commitment, they actually intensify. How do you respond when you're tested? Do you call back to remembrance God and his promises, his faithfulness in the past? Or do you allow the threat to overshadow any recollection of God, of who he is and what he's promised? Fear and faint-heartedness begin with forgetting, but reassurance is bound up in remembrance. Fear and faint-heartedness begin with forgetting, but reassurance is bound up in remembrance. When we remember God despite our threats, we show that God is foundational. There is no circumstance that can shift his place at the root of our confidence. Hebrews 10.23, this is what it says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful Nehemiah anticipated this hope centuries before its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And he held fast to this hope through each step, believing that God is faithful. Church, we serve a great God who's more than able to carry out his purposes with or without our help. But when he does elect to use you or to teach you something, remember the burden of Nehemiah's heart and how he worked it out in faithful and concrete steps. Let's pray together. Father, you've taken us on this journey through the eyes of Nehemiah, your servant. You've allowed us to see the burden of his heart and how you allowed that burden to be fleshed out into these steps that ultimately became the starting point for the physical reconstruction of the city and the ultimate restoration of your people. Thank you for the faithful example in Nehemiah. There's so many ways that we as a church and we as individuals, you know, we desire to act out faithfulness and reverence towards you. And we recognize that as much as Nehemiah cared for his people and showed concern, you were ultimately the one that was at work behind the scenes. And you ultimately bring restoration through your son, Jesus Christ. 
We thank you for calling us to you. We thank you for bringing us into perfect fellowship by the finished work that Jesus did. And we pray that that would remain our mainstay, our hope, and the reason why we can have a confidence that does not waver. And I pray that as we continue in the following weeks in the study of Nehemiah, that you would give us eyes to see the wonder of your mercy, your faithfulness, and your sovereignty on display in the particular ways that you're ministering to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.